0: Missing persons cases are always regarded in mystery. The onset questions are absolutely endless. Even the most mundane of circumstances get the human wondering, what if and what happened? However, there is a new kind of phenomenon that is sweeping the most mundane location of our planet. Or I should say the most mundane locations of our planet, because they're scattered around the world, are national parks. National parks are, quite literally, eating people, and no one is talking about it. All that and more on Cancelled Conversations. So, you're probably wondering from the title, what is a missing 411 case? There is a reason why it has a very specific name to it, and is not just regarded as a normal missing persons case. In order for a case to fall under 411, the disappearance must have occurred in a national park, A rural area or a large reserve of public land. There are also other similarities, but we'll go into that later. The disappearance usually involves a strange set of circumstances that are not influenced by any sort of mental illness or involuntary disappearance. This, at that point, invalidates the case itself, and evidence for any sort of simple explanation is immediately ruled out as the cause. For example, being eaten by an animal self-harm, or like I said, voluntary disappearance. And if you're wondering on why it's associated with the number 411, it's the American dial code for information. Missing 411 plainly means missing information. It's basically a metaphor that's used to describe the whole ordeal um, shrouded in mystery and missing important information. Considering this is a type of disappearance, I'm sure you're probably thinking that these cases are a rarity. Maybe it's something that occurs in a long shot. It's just not something that occurs very often. And honestly, considering that there are so many different kinds of uh, missing persons and disappearances, alien abductions, kidnappings, regular abductions, runaways, things like that, I wouldn't blame you. However, to the surprise of many, including myself, there are more than 1,006 Hundred cases that have been reported since the 1970s. In fact, there are cases that even predate that time frame. However, there's a guy that we're going to go into in just a moment, David Politis. He's basically a very outspoken investigator of the 411 phenomenon. He's actually one of the people that we can thank for uh, most of the coverage of these cases. Um, He has taken a deep dive. He's made several documentaries that you can find on YouTube. Um, One that I watched while I was kind of prepping for this was Missing, uh, I think it's called Missing 411, The Hunter, something like that. That one was really good. There's another one that I saw as well. I don't remember the name of it, Um, but pretty much any documentary, he also has books that you can read. Kind of just to give you a little bit of background on him. Um, He was basically a police officer for about 20 years. And instead of doing that, um, because of certain experiences he's had, he dedicates his life to investigating these types of wilderness encounters that we're going to go into. Um, While many have their reservations about his credibility, me included, just because of some of the claims that he's made. um, When you hear the details on these cases, it immediately invalidates anything that he might say because if you're a person that believes in science and common sense, your common sense would tell you, mm, this is weird. And trust me, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak too soon. You'll see. Um, One of the main reasons why people have the reservations is because of the whole like monster thing again even me I was like no when I heard a monster I was like nope no monster you know it's no like just because you know it it sounds like something out of like a, a science fiction novel you know what I mean it sounds it's not something that you commonplace think of if you believe in like regular biology like just mammals and amphibians and things like that it falls out of this the zone of it at that point kind of it becomes folklore it becomes like you know like nessie like the loch ness monster things like that to be fair you're totally right with thinking that again my biases were like no whatever but again i shut the fuck up and i listened (laughs) To be honest, I shut the fuck up and I listened. And once I read these cases myself and I did a lot more research, I realized that, no, something really weird is going on in these parks and a lot of people are not covering it. Now, David, the founder of the North American Bigfoot search. I know. I know. You hear the word Bigfoot and automatically you think that this shit is bogus. I promise you. I thought the same thing, but it gets interesting. Anyway, um, being already interested in one aspect of nature, a.k.a. Bigfoot, um, David launched a database of wildland disappearances that occurred under missing disappear, girl, that occurred under missing circumstances or what we'd call a 411. Why? Well, knowing that he was an author, he was covering topics that were pretty much already outside of the norm. A lot of people knew him because of this. So, He was approached by two park rangers while he was at a national park, visiting one of them one day. And guess what they wanted to talk about? They wanted to inform him of strange circumstances involving hikers that had happened over the years. Base info. This basically threw him headfirst into, again, what we will call the 411. I don't wanna tell you too much. Again, this is just base info, trust me you're gonna to wanna to hear these things in order so you yourself so you yourself can kind of make up uh make a educated guess as to what's going on because a lot of these things I don't see how anybody with the right mind could explain what the hell is going on anyway, it threw him into this head first, and now he has over five books on the topic and he has a few documentaries like i just discussed under his belt so we can thank him for a lot of the stuff that he's done again i don't believe in bigfoot so to be honest with you i'm not going to be going into that um i don't think it's real um in fact i think the 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 word bigfoot itself it, it, it's just like i don't know like to me to be honest with you to me it gives the same energy as like flat earther i think that's bogus. There's a lot of evidence to show why the earth is curved. So I think that's bogus. And that's kind of the same lens that I view Bigfoot as. But whatever. He brought these cases to light and we have to thank him for the, you know, we have to give him credit. Now, one of the main reasons why people think that these cases are so interesting is because a lot of them have the exact same they have like these weird random things in common these weird similarities and i'm going to go into the similarities with you in just a moment it, it it's the most random of things so it's not anything that you would think of like i don't know they were um uh, they were found in the same trail like it's the same trail area it's a lot more interesting and more specific than that and i should say while not every case contains every single similarity The similarities become difficult to ignore once they start coming up a lot more often. Um, And you'll get what I mean in just a second. But let's go into these strange uh, coincidences or what I would call similarities. The similarities themselves are striking because if they were one-off occurrences, we wouldn't expect them to align in any way. But they often do. In fact, they usually always do. For example, most of the disappearances I'm going to discuss with you today happened on main trails that are marked and popular among hikers in the area. So these aren't people who just slipped into the vast forest and got lost. These trails are constantly being walked on. Somebody would have seen something. Not only that, but they mainly involve people who know their way around the wilderness really well. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. Because I will be breaking down a lot of cases for you. In fact, we're going to be going into about seven different cases, um, in my opinion, are the most interesting cases I have found. There are, again, like we discussed, 1,600 others and many more um, that are probably haven't been found yet or documented. But I found the seven that, to me, raised my eyebrows the most. And I will be giving those to you in a second. Um, people also tend to disappear late in the afternoon and, or during a severe weather event. So the weather event either happened, uh, you know, during, after, or kind of right just before, uh, bodies are, bodies are usually found naked and missing shoes, even though hypothermia has been ruled out. Hypothermia is mentioned because there's this thing called paradoxal undressing that basically makes you take off all your clothes in the late stages of hypothermia because the people that are experiencing said hypothermia feel hot. So obviously they're not hot. It's a strange reaction by the body that kind of just literally makes them take off their clothes and essentially die by their own accord. So people are often found in places that are impossible to reach, either places that are really high in elevation or extremely far away from uh, where they were originally reported missing. If bodies are even eventually found, they are usually found in places that have previously been searched as well. Uh, So places that dogs, canines, things like that have been uh, around. In fact, not only that, canines cannot trace the scent. Canines can't really find any scent trails. It's literally like these people disappear and vanish without a scent. No pun intended. To make matters even more confusing, cause of death is usually not able to be completely determined, and this is because the cases exhibit no clear patterns uh, of cause of death. For example, an animal bite or scratches to point towards an animal attack or a broken mountain piece pointing to a deadly fall. The cases also link geographically into what are called clusters, which are specific regions that these missing persons cases happen, Um, you know, places where it's like 50 people, 40 people, 30 people have been found in the same area. They're called clusters, Uh, and there's pretty much more than 50 recognized clusters across the continental United States and Canada. These cases also oftentimes happen near water or in swamplands. For whatever reason, people are also found by berry shrubs or boulder fields. And if you are miraculously found alive, most people actually document experiencing complete memory loss. Not only can they not remember what happened during, uh, to them while they were lost, but they also have no recollection of being lost in the first place. It's literally like a video game where they respawn somewhere after they got lost. And with that said, now that you know that, let's get into some of the cases. First up, Bobby Bizup. The story sets itself simply. Bobby was a 10-year-old camper at, Saint, at Camp St. Marlowe in Colorado in 1958. Bobby loved to fish. Wasn't surprising to see him diverge from the camp to do some fishing. He also was partially deaf and he wore a hearing aid. Bobby, as usual, told his friends he was going to fish just a bit of distance from the camp. It was his thing. At around 6 p.m., it was dinner time at the camp. A camp counselor came by while Bobby was fishing and told him that it was time for dinner. Bobby acknowledges and follows the counselor back to the base camp. Counselor says Bobby was walking right behind him. The counselor turns around, kept walking, turns back around, and moments later, Bobby is gone. Nowhere to be found. Boom, the search immediately begins. Coincidentally, Camp St. Marlowe is actually right on the border of Rocky Mountain National Park. Within just four days, there was more than 400 searchers comprised of police, national park rangers, and volunteers. The police and rangers were quite confused as to how he could have gotten lost, considering the trail back to the base camp was straight down and extremely defined. It was like one of those, you know, you can't miss it. For somebody like him, especially who knew his way around a few trees for his age, it just didn't seem to add up. In efforts to further attempt to reach Bobby, there were left, there were leaflets dropped out of the sky via plane that read, Mother and father love you. We need you. Mother is sick. She needs you at home. We love you. The reason these were sent out is because somebody mistakenly took a boy with a hearing aid who was in the town um, and they made a report. Because of this, it was now assumed that Bobby was doing all of this as a joke, he was basically pulling a prank, and now he was evading police to avoid getting in trouble. Obviously, as I told you, it was just another boy with hearing problems. On August 25th, nine days later, the search was formally terminated, leaving police and rangers absolutely flabbergasted as to how this boy just vanished into thin air in this popular and marked trail. But the story doesn't end there, though. The year after, three camp counselors who were part of the search efforts returned to the area and found a few interesting things. The counselors were walking up the side of Mount Meeker, leading a group of boys from the camp along Cabin Creek, crossing the boundary into Rocky Mountain. They were about 11,000 feet in elevation when suddenly one of the camp counselors, Neil Hewitt, spots torn pieces of clothing then a bone, and finally, a hearing aid. After a year, they had identified Bobby in the same ravine they had already searched about three times just 12 months prior. Now here's the problem. There was no way that this boy was lost. The uphill climb of this mountain is not only exhausting for an adult, but it is physically difficult to get through the rocky terrain on purpose. Even wanting to, as a hiker, it's hard to do it. So it's hard to understand how a 10-year-old who was presumably lost decided to go against everything he knows and hike up the mountain instead of down where it was safe due to a practical joke. I know it's not easy, especially for me, being a person who doesn't really live near any uh, near anywhere sort of mountains. I live in Miami, Florida, so the closest mountain that we have is, like, the trash hills um, (laughs) that are, you know, in Homestead. That's about it. So, it's not really a thing that we know about. We don't really have mountains up here. I think you start getting mountains once you start reaching, like, Georgia or something like that. I don't know. I just know we don't have them here. Um, But anyway, so, it's hard to understand when you don't live near mountains the distances and how those distances work. So, I'm going to show you a picture Um, The picture, for those of you that are listening, you know, I do definitely encourage you to watch it on the channel. It's going to help you kind of understand the grasp of how far it was. But basically, it was three miles up an elevation where he was found three miles up from the camp. Again, this is an uphill climb. So if he was going up at one point, he could have literally looked down and seen the camp. Even after all these years, there is literally still no clear explanation as to how Bobby ended up where he did. In fact, 75% of children who get lost are normally found within just four-tenths of a mile from where they were last seen. So, fairly close. Yeah, it's still a ways over. It's not in the next room. But it's still closer than three miles in elevation on an uphill climb for a... 10-year-old boy And let's talk about the similarities compared to what we discussed previously. I'm going to be doing this for all of them. We're going to go ahead at the end and discuss the similarities. Near water. High elevation. Far away from here was uh, from where he was last seen. Found in an area that was previously searched and he was lost on a well-used an easy to follow trail. Again, it was easy to follow, not because, oh, you know, you should have known. It was easy to follow because it was common sense that if you went up, you were obviously not going the wrong, the right way. But this case, while tragic, is nothing close to how bizarre things can get. So let's turn it up a notch. The case of Charles McCuller. It's 1975 and Charles McCullough decided he wants to go on one of his usual hikes to one of these remote mountainous locations in Oregon and take some cool pictures. One of those cool little like landscape pictures that you put on your like that you put as your background on your MacBook, that kind of stuff. He was one of those people. Now, this wasn't uncommon. Um, His friends regularly knew him to disappear for a few days into the mountains to take some pictures. First of all, I would hate to have a friend like that because I have anxiety and I would throw myself against the window. The window. (laughs) I can't with myself. The window. Um, In fact, he had been doing these trips for over a year, so he was rather experienced, and it was a known hobby for him. Charles let his friends know he'd be taking his trip and would be gone for two days before coming back. Except day three came along, and Charles still had not returned. At that point, like any other friend, like me, first of all, I would have called the cops within an hour. Anyway, um, they called him, they called the cops within about uh, three days. They called the cops at this point. They were like, uh, something is up now with the police involved. An investigation was conducted and it was determined that Charles was last seen by a park ranger who gave him a ride to the trail that he was intending to follow. Now there have been reports that he was spotted 45 minutes from this trail And another that he was trudging through five feet of snow. However, the only verifiable encounter is the one with the park ranger. A huge search was created for Charles. However, efforts were deeply stunted because of 12 feet of snow that was recently left by a storm, by a snowstorm. And here's where things begin to take one of those weird turns that all of these cases do. Shortly after the start of the investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, got involved. Now, the FBI doesn't get involved unless a kidnapping or evidence of foul play is found. To this day, nobody knows why the FBI was involved. There was nothing there besides a story of a guy who went missing while he was hiking. There was literally no evidence at that point. Um, There was no evidence to point that, you know, there was a kidnapping or there was foul play. At that point, there was literally nothing. He had just disappeared. They literally hadn't found any physical evidence. The only story anyone had was just that he disappeared. That's it. Yet even after months of searching and all the snow having melted away, there was still no sign of Charles. Until October 1st of 1976, almost two full years since Charles initially went missing, two hikers found a backpack lying 12 miles away from where the park ranger dropped off Charles. They were able to identify this was Charles. Because the keys match the, vol- the Volkswagen that Charles drove. I hate that word so much. I can never say the word Volkswagen correctly. Anyway, it wasn't long after before his remains were found in the nearby Bybee Creek. Now, the FBI getting involved suddenly was weird, but that was only the beginning. Charles's jeans were found sitting upright on a log with no other articles of clothing nearby. All his other clothes, including his coat, shirt, and any other sort of undergarments, had vanished. The jeans were also unbuttoned, and the belt was unbuckled, signifying that whoever took them off did it by choice. They weren't just yanked off by the teeth of an animal as he was being dragged away. The only other pieces of clothing nearby were his socks, which happened to be tucked into the bottom of his jeans' pant legs. The socks the ones that I just mentioned, contained various feet bones and inside of the genes we just talked about had shin bones in them. Then just 12 feet away, Charles' skeletal remains were found in a pile. Nature had taken its course and began to break down the fragments. However, enough of his teeth were left over to where they could create a dental record and identify that it was him. That's it though. All his other equipment completely disappeared, and it was never found. It's worth mentioning that this area where he was found was an extremely remote part of the trail. In fact, it was so remote that the initial search crew was not able to make it up there due to the heavy snow, and they figured it was okay because he would never even be able to make that up there anyway. That's how difficult it was to get up there. The search crew didn't want to go up there. We discussed hypothermia earlier and how it's often brought up to explain how these bodies often end up naked, and maybe you'd bring that up in this case. However, like many people have pointed out, that immediately gets disproven when we bring up the fact that, his, that part of his legs, I should say, I was going to say his legs, part of his legs, aka his feet, were found in the jeans. Now, similarities, inclement weather, high point of elevation, missing clothing, and he was near water. I did mention that these are often found near bodies of water, so let's discuss one near swampland. It's not a national park, I know. However, it's not a national park, aka a forest, but it's technically like a wet forest. Vast, wide, lots of trees, diverse wildlife, you get my point. I mention this because of the case of two-year-old Rowan Grifton in New Hampshire, 2010. Now, this one is a short one but it baffles me every single time that I hear it. Rowan was staying at his grandmother's house, which happens to be across the street from Barton State Wildlife Management Area. Rowan was playing with a cat in the yard surrounded by maybe like eight to 10 kids. The cat ran off into the woods. He did too. And then they both disappeared. Like any other kid, when you're not paying attention, they can get lost. That's not why it's weird, but we'll get there anyway. An immediate search was launched in the area before the authorities had to be involved due to him still being lost. The authorities searched for the rest of the afternoon, determining it would be hard to find him under the nighttime conditions. Here's where it gets weird. The next day, they resumed searching. This time, they found him pretty quickly because they called out to him and he actually answered to his name. And then pretty much called for his mother like any other child would. Yet Rowan was not found by the initial search team. He was found by an individual search group that decided to test their luck in a swampy area three miles away from where his grandma's house was. They found Rowan clinging to a tree in the center of a pond within the swamp, saying that he was afraid of the cows and that cows chased him onto the tree. Rowan. A two-year-old who could not swim in the middle of a pond was found completely dry, saying that he was chased into the swamp by cows. In case it needs to be mentioned, there was no reported cow sightings in the area. Similarities. Swampland, very far away from original location. clearly there there it could be argued that there's some evidence of reported memory loss because he definitely wasn't scared into it into the area by cows i love cows i literally have a cow tattoo they're really gentle animals so i have a hard time believing that he was scared of cows i doubt that i get it he's a kid but they're cows like How scared could he really have been of the cows? Come on. In my opinion, the next case is probably the craziest one that I'm going to be talking about today. And this is the story of Aaron Hedges and the Crazies. Before beginning the story of Aaron's disappearance, I want to discuss the Crazy Mountains themselves. The Crazy Mountains are a group of mountains that are 300 million years younger than the surrounding Rocky Mountains, forming what would be called an island group of nations. Now, the name itself has always been shrouded in mystery. The story as to why it's called The Crazies can never be decided on. There are some stories of a curse being put on the land by the Crow Indians to drive the white men crazy. There was a story of a woman who, after seeing the huge obstacles of crossing the mountains, jumped out of her wagon, pulled out her hair, and ran screaming into the forest, never to be seen again. However, the two most prominent tales are of a woman who lost her mind in a violent rampage after her family was assaulted and killed by the Blackfeet tribe. Interestingly enough, the story is also told in the opposite lens with white men attacking a Native American woman's family. The most believed tale, though, is the second one out of the two. To sum it up, the Native Americans in the area believed that the mountains were a place of visions, a place where one could reveal their inner truths and be aligned with the universe and their ancestors. Now, when the cowboys, when the white cowboys came to settle with their families, I say that they were white only because there's obviously a language barrier. They asked the natives what they called the, mount, uh, they asked the natives what they called the mountains because of the language barrier. The natives, the natives were left to explain these vision quests using gestures, pointing at the sky, widening their eyes, and raising their arms above their head. The settlers saw this. And assumed that the natives meant it was a place where people lost their minds and went crazy. I just thought it was really interesting to mention that so that you understand the kind of environment that we're dealing with energetically. Something feels off, almost like a poisonous flower. Beautiful, but in its thorns hides a darker tale. And this is where the story of Aaron Hedges begins. We should start the story off by saying that Aaron was an extremely experienced hunter. So experienced, as you'll hear soon, he kept extra supplies all around the mountains just in case. On September third of twenty fourteen, fourteen, on September on September third of twenty fourteen, Aaron began a hunting trip with his friends Greg and Joe. The men headed out from Cottonwood Lake Trailhead with two horses and a mule. I don't know why they brought a mule, but it was there. The hike was going great. They were headed towards a place called Campfire Lake. That was until the mule got spooked and kicked over Aaron's sleeping bag over a ledge on the trail and it was gone. Blew away off a cliff. It sucked, but the good news was that it wasn't their first time in the mountains and the group was keeping another hunting base camp with supplies, including extra sleeping bags. Aaron decided that he would just try to deal with it. But if it did become a problem, he knew a place where he can get backup supplies. After a few days, it did become an issue. And he realized he would be uncomfortable without these supplies for the week-long trip. And so on September 5th, Aaron decided he would make the trek over to the area named Sunlight Lake, where everything was. It wasn't a long distance from where they were, and Aaron was quite the experienced outdoorsman. He also had a walkie-talkie, a cell phone, and armed with a bow and a firearm. The walkie-talkies themselves are important to mention because they weren't your average run-of-the-mill toy walkie-talkies. These were highly advanced. So when you spoke to somebody, a screen on the walkie-talkies would show you exactly where the person was on the GPS. They had one of those, like, LED screens. So if anything were to occur, Aaron could call for help, and he could defend himself. Aaron told his friends of his plan and let them know he would be back by nightfall. He immediately set his sights on the trail to save time, walked over the farthest visible tree, turned a corner, and was never physically seen again. For a few hours after that, Aaron went radio silent. The men hadn't heard from him in a few hours. The men at that point decided to go ahead and reach out to him via walkie-talkie because they were worried. Rather than being north and to the west, where he should have been heading to, he was actually going north and to the east based on the GPS image the way the trail he was on was set was with a fork in the road at a portion of the trail meaning at some point aaron had to make the decision between left to upstream or right to downstream the correct route to find the necessary supplies was supposed to be upstream and like i mentioned he was a well-established outdoorsman but somehow he went to the right and downstream in that moment where they in that moment when they reached out to him they saw his coordinates and even Aaron was acutely aware that he was going the wrong way and got off track. So he let the men know that he would be reversing course and should be with them come nightfall or morning time. That was why, come nighttime, the men just assumed he ended up sleeping where he was and would be with them by morning. They waited. Nighttime came. They waited. Daytime came. And that morning, they tried to speak with him using the walkie talkies and they got no response. After this, the men decided that they would wait around for him for that full day. And when again he didn't show, they at that point began to look for him on the seventh and last day of their trip. By the end of this day, it was understood that Aaron was officially missing. And because of an inclement snowstorm, the police was contacted. The county of Sweetgrass Sheriff Office let them know they also needed to get in touch with Park County. Both counties would begin their searches on opposite sides of the mountain, meeting in the middle. So they were kind of doing this in efforts to maximize the possibility of finding him. The search team included 60 personnel, 20 canine teams, and two helicopters. From my research, search teams are usually bigger. However, it's widely accepted that because of the size of the region and the region and terrain that they were in, it was okay for the kind of situation they were dealing with. And again, like I told you, they were basically going to meet in the middle. So um, if you can't see what I'm describing, what I'm doing with my fingers right now, because you're listening, um, basically, I'm just kind of moving my fingers together, um, kind of like to point that they're meeting in the center. The trail he was on was very rigid. It's not like your typical trail that you can kind of easily diverge from the path. Maybe you skip over a tree on the floor. However, this trail was densely populated with huge boulders and the terrain was very rocky. So the team believed that if they were going to find him, this is where they were going to find him because he couldn't really go anywhere else. Because of the snowstorm that I mentioned earlier, even the police were halted in the search efforts. Once it stopped, though, they went straight to work but found nothing pertaining to Aaron. That was until September 9th, a canine team found Aaron's boots. Instantly, the search team all went to the area to try and find more. More indeed was found. More indeed was found. They were able to locate a water bladder, a campfire pit, and oddly, his boots were neatly placed next to each other and burned in the fire pit, they found remains of the waist straps from his backpack. To the surprise of many, these boots were found five aerial miles from where his GPS last pinged his location. Now, remember when I mentioned that they spoke with Aaron and he said that he would be turning around? Well, these boots leave the impression that he continued to move in the wrong direction knowingly, specifically for five miles. Yet the surprises of the mystery do not end there. Aaron's friends had already searched that area and suddenly the boots appeared after the fact. You would assume that more was found in the area where Elite is. However, the search went completely cold after these developments for another nine months in June of 2015, specifically on the 22nd of June, 2015, the Ryans a rancher family found something very interesting while they were doing some fence repair on their ranch on a stroll up the hill. The father-in-law of the Ryan family found an orange hunting vest, a bow and arrow, and a backpack, the backpack containing an ID that belonged to Aaron Hedges. It should be mentioned that the backpack, as well as some of the other items that I'm about to mention, were neatly placed against a tree, almost as if on purpose, and nearby there was a thermos and a cup of the thermos just sitting on a rock like if somebody had a cup of tea while they were staring at a nice view. The backpack also contained food that was not eaten, not even touched. The wrappers weren't even open. At this point, it's theorized that he dropped the bag off because it was dead weight and he was desperate. It was assumed that the reason why he removed his shoes was because of what I mentioned earlier, paradoxical undressing, what makes you feel hot when you have hypothermia. However. Is it fair to reason that a shoeless, hypothermic man hiked east for several miles just to throw all of his things around the field? In fact, from where the thermos was placed, if he was truly in despair, from this location point, he could literally see the Ryan Ranch less than a mile from where he was. So if needed, he could get the help. So the clues presented want us to believe that the shoeless hypothermic man had a hot cup of tea before deciding that less than a mile was too much. And he would instead dump his belongings in a carefully scattered manner across a field and then evaporate into thin air. That is exactly the conclusion. That. You would come to if these facts were put onto paper. Because of these developments, they launched another search for evidence recovery. Yet again, nothing was found. Yet again. Until a year later on August 8th of 2016, when the remains of Aaron Hedges were finally found on the Grass Ranch by a man on a horse ride. They found a skull, a pelvis a femur, his cell phone, a jacket, and uh, no socks or feet. The crazy part about this discovery is that none of the bones were broken. There was zero sign of injury. Like I said earlier, it is like he laid all his stuff down and evaporated. To sum up the distances of where these bits of info were found throughout these six years, let me tell you how scattered all of this is. And you can come up to the own conclusion on how a hypothermic shoeless man was able to do all of this. His body was found 11 air miles from where his GPS last pinged his location, six miles from the boots, and less than a mile from the Ryan's family ranch to his ultimate safety similarities boulders water weather event basically got lost by missing a turn disappeared late afternoon body was found extremely far away from where originally positioned missing parts of clothing no cause of death found things in areas previously searched next up this case is another short one but it's another that paints a very big picture like the one that i mentioned earlier about the boy in the swampland this is the mind-bending case of christopher tompkins the date is january 25th 2002 and christopher tompkins is getting ready for his work day he leaves his home at around 8 p.m to his survey company job he got along well with his coworkers. Including the owner. In fact, his mom's uh, his mom would even babysit the owner's son, so he enjoyed his job. Once clocked in at the office, Christopher rode with a coworker to the work to the work site in Ellsville. Ellsver Ellersville? Ellersville, Georgia. While wow, that's a hard word to pronounce. The crew that day was made up of four men and they were working in a line formation about fifty feet apart between each other. After coming back from lunch at around one p.m. Chris and one of his co-workers were having a conversation while starting to resume work. Both now working, they were looking at their tasks and just speaking loudly to get the conversation going. Y'all know how we humans do. Ah, you know how we do. His co-worker, waiting for a response to the conversation they just started, turns to see that Chris is suddenly no longer there, even though he had literally just turned around. His co-worker called out his name a few times and got no response. At this point, he just assumed that he had stepped away to use the bathroom, so he just gave him a second. However, after calling his name a few more times, it was clear that Chris was no longer in the area, and at this point, he went ahead and he called the other co-workers to begin looking for him. The crew walked over to Chris's specific work area and saw his tools just laying around, and then one of his boots was actually found hanging off the top of a nearby barbed wire fence. Ultimately, this and no sign from Chris led his coworkers to calling nine one one to report him missing. However, police departments were still running by the myth that a twenty four hour wait period is necessary, and that's exactly what they did. They waited twenty four hours. This same day at around four fifteen p.m., this same this same day at around four fifteen p.m., Chris's mother was notified of her son's disappearance. After the twenty four hours, police began their area search the next day. The discoveries were interesting, to say the least. Near where his boots were found, the police found a blue piece of fabric that matched his pants, and they found 12 cents on the ground right underneath his work spot. Almost as if somebody had picked him up by his feet, the change in his pockets ultimately slipping out, his shoes falling off, followed by a subsequent vanishing. The police questioned the men. None were suspected of being involved in foul play. Then five months later, a local farmer is walking on his property and finds a lone boot in the swampland that surrounded the edge of his. The boot was determined to be Christopher's, and it was almost a mile from the spot where he was last seen. Similarities Near water Swampland Far away from last place seen Missing most of clothing No cause of death or direct reasoning for disappearance Now, this next one is extremely interesting. And just like David Politis, who initially revealed the existence of these clips, I promise you, I am only talking about this because there is actual audio evidence. I would not be talking about this if this was just something that I found on YouTube and I thought it was interesting to throw in here. No, 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 no. this isn't just interesting. This is compelling. These are the Sierra camp tapes. Before I get into playing the clips, it's very important for you to understand how secluded the area in which they record they were recorded is in. The specific area we will be the specific area we will be discussing is in the Sierra Nevada mountains, north of Yosemite. Now that location is important to mention because the audio recordings were taken very closely to Yosemite, an area known for its 411 missing persons cluster. The area where the recording took place was eight was 8,500 feet up and eight miles from the nearest trailhead and road. There is no trail to this campsite. In fact, the group of hunters find it using memory and orienting themselves with the sky. The group also had no intentions of releasing the exact location because they are very much aware of the spectacle that will be made of this place. And this is kind of like one of those places where, you know, you generationally want to take your family. So they don't want this place to get, you know, scattered up by a bunch of you know people wanting to get you know recorded evidence of whatever weird noise anyway all we know is that the area they are in is between yosemite and lake tahoe the area is surrounded by freshwater springs trees obviously and boulder fields the area also falls between the lower montane and upper montane biotic zones which if you like me and have no idea what the fuck that means i will tell you it means that you can expect moldier black bear, mountain lions, and smaller forest creatures. They could have just said that, but humans make words for everything. Anyway, on to the tapes. The tapes were recorded by Ron Moorhead and Al Berry while they were on a group trip. Ron had known of the campsite's existence since the 1950s. However, he himself and his buddies only began to make the trek over in 1971. 1971 was when those weird sounds started to happen. The reason the men were confused and scared by these sounds is because they did not materialize in the forms of growls, wolf cries, etc. The sounds were of chatter, whistles, whoops, almost as if with some sort of human cadence. In fact, some sounds coming off as some sort of unintelligible human language. The sounds appearing so human that the group hiding in a makeshift wooden shelter were afraid that an arm would come through at one point to grab them. Yet none of the times did anything ever get too physically close for comfort. Ron knew he had something on his hands. Coincidentally, Alberry worked in a TV. And he worked in a TV. He was ca- held captive. He was held captive by Warner Brothers. <laughs> um, anyway... <laughs> I worked as a reporter. So when Ron started hearing really weird noises in 1971, I was like, dude, that's like totally far out. We should totally record that. And so they did. October 21st, 1972, Al brought up a camera and a tape recorder. Here's what they recorded. Woo. 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 This oh do All, am glad you left. We i know where look for going sure, to try that for of Oh yeah. <dis> sounds are some of the strangest bits of audio I have ever heard in my life. And in fact, the last 40 seconds genuinely give me goosebumps that I have never felt before. Goosebumps like I've never had in my life, if I'm being honest. As human beings, there is something very eerie that happens in us when our natural receptors kick in. Like the hairs on the back of a cat, our body's natural defense is to make us scared and uncomfortable. So we are forced to move away from any sort of danger. The sounds honestly give off a humanness to them, almost like a conversation, but with something terribly off. Parts of it sound like some sort of alien language attempting to use a human cadence, or something that was human, but evolved into something other. This is not where the revelations end though. While the suspects who created said noises are never caught on cameras, their voices on the other hand, have been scientifically tested. While this is not the only clip, this is actually the clip with the clearest sounds that isn't muffled or too far away to really hear out what's being, uh, what the sounds that are being made. Here are some of the interesting discoveries that were found. The speech patterns presented in the audio were found to be within a human level of articulation, immediately throwing off any possibility of an animal species. The vocal, the vocal range presented in the tapes were broader than the average human. The tapes were concluded to contain no actual human speech, more so just patterns of noise. All the speech patterns found in the audio were found to fall within human range, except for one only known as "gur," which is the growl heard in the audio. This one completely falls out of the human male range. And if you're wondering, well, maybe it was just a deep voice of a man they tested that out as well they tested the voice of a deep male and the sound still fell out of a human range most telling of all though the sounds were used to determine the height of whatever this could be and it also fell within the range of six foot four and seven foot three for all of them however more terrifying is the fact that when isolated to the gur sound the estimate becomes seven foot four an eight foot two. The average American man is five foot nine. To anyone with the immediate thought of, well, they could have been fake. The test actually determined that the possibility of falsification was nearly impossible. This was due to the technology at the time, as well as no signs of doctoring. It is also scientifically understood that certain creatures can make certain noises depending on their vocal cords. It was theorized that whatever it was has to have similar vocal cords to a human, however, with two vocal cavities instead of one. Why? Well, because it was determined that based on the evidence, whatever it is either made the sound using a musical instrument or they were using only a part, only one, (laughs) of their vocal tracks. (laughs) More importantly, though, to those who automatically claim it was staged or the tapes were doctored, who the hell is going to stand in the pitch black of night in the middle of a forest to fuck with some hunters that have guns? Mm, not me, girl. <laughs> Definitely not me. <laughs> Definitely not me. I'm not I'm not, not going to be doing that. I'm not going to be doing that. Highlight this story, though, to say... There is something in our national parks, something unrecognizable to us humans, more predacious than the average human. Something we don't know exists on these lands is in between these trees. There is something we have not met yet. I don't know what it is, but after all of this research and these tapes, I'd be going against my own common sense, to be honest, to ignore the connections. Want to get eaten and never seen again? Head on over to these beautiful places. Their beauty is used to draw you in. But coming out? Clearly is never guaranteed. Now, this isn't really a missing persons case, but I did find some similarities. High point of elevation. Water. Boulder fields. And this is the last story I'm going to tell you today. The case of Dennis Martin. It's 1969, and it's a sunny Father's Day weekend at Smoky Mountains National Park. Dennis Martin, six years old, is enjoying the day with his father, his brother, and his grandfather. I guess you can call it like a guy's weekend to celebrate the holiday. They camped out for the night, and all was well. That was until Monday morning. They camped out for the night, and all was well. That was until the next morning. The next day, a stranger came up to Dennis' father and thought their kids should play together as they were all camping in the same area and the kids were the same age. Being a parent and wanting to have a few moments to relax, Dennis's father said yes, and the kids began a game of hide and seek. Before you think Dennis' father took his eyes off of him and lost him, being that his child was playing with a stranger's children, his father was keeping a very, very close eye on him. The guys were talking amongst themselves When the kids finally revealed themselves and Dennis, whose father saw him hide behind a tree, did not come out. His father noticed this immediately and he ran over to the tree he saw him hide behind. But there was no trace of Dennis Martin. The infamous Appalachian Trail was nearby and his paternal instincts kicked in immediately. And this man runs at full speed for two miles yelling Dennis everywhere. He unfortunately had no luck in finding him, and so they immediately went to the park rangers and searched for the rest of the night under a rainstorm and with temperatures dropping. The situation was dire, and the area where Dennis appeared was surrounded by steep slopes and ravines, making it vital that search teams get involved immediately or this could easily become a drowning. And boy did a search team get involved. To the surprise of many, it wasn't just police and park rangers, as well as obviously the usual volunteers. No. The FBI showed up, and so did the Green Berets. To those of you who don't understand why this is really strange, the Green Berets are a special unit of the U.S. Army that have literally been used to take down tyrannical governments from the inside. The Green Berets were literally used in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. What the hell? What the hell were they doing in a national forest? What the hell are they doing in a forest looking for a six-year-old with the FBI? Even with all of these strange government forces being a part of the case and more than 1,000 people searching in total, they were only able to find one of Dennis's shoes and one of his socks. A body was never recovered. Again, another vanished. That's not where things end though. This gets more interesting. The Key family, another family staying in the area, saw something very interesting that day. They had come in asking the park rangers where they can safely see bears. As park rangers do, they told them where to go, and so they did. On arrival, the family reported hearing what they described as an enormous, sickening scream. That's an exact quote. The family looked up to where the sound came from, and the child reported seeing something that looked like a bear. The father, the adult in the situation, with a better grasp on reality and their imagination, said it actually looked like a, quote, wild, hairy mountain man that was dodging through trees while carrying something over its shoulder. Park Rangers and the FBI threw out the possibility of it because it was five miles from where Dennis Martin had originally disappeared. First of all, duh, they threw it out. But after all the cases that we discussed today, is distance really ever that surprising? Similarities. Water. Inclement weather. Missing clothing. Only his shoes and only... Only one of his shoes and a sock were found, I should say. Now, obviously, these are missing persons cases, many where any possibility of determining what could have occurred is nearly impossible, at least at the current time with the evidence that we have provided. However, that doesn't stop us from pondering on different theories that might explain these cases. So let's actually discuss some of the most popular theories that people have for what this could be they got lost in the vast wilderness some people will automatically just go to the conclusion that missing people were just way over their heads and underestimated the dangers of the wilderness however like we discussed today many of the disappearances however like we discussed today many of the disappearances were either on main trails or found in places impossible for them to be in remains and equipment are also found spread across miles if this happened naturally everything would at least be in one area, right? It only makes sense. Another popular theory is mountain lions. Many people will automatically bring up mountain lions. First of all, not only is there literally zero evidence of any sort of animal attack or any sort of animal predation in any of these cases, but since 1915, there have only been 14 reported fatal mountain lion cases in the US and Canada. So if I'm being honest, that's as far as, that's as much time as I'll be giving that theory because I don't, I think it's not, I don't think it's far-fetched. I think it's ignorant. Next up, cults. They're not far-fetched. Cults are not far-fetched. However, in these cases, they're not all in one place. These are all scattered throughout the U.S. and Canada. So these are not all in one place. That wouldn't make any sense unless the cult is from the future and is able to access like some sort of time portal. They're obviously not because of a cult, nor has any evidence of cults or makeshift buildings where a cult would reside have been found in these areas. Another popular one, I wouldn't really say popular, but it's another one that's kind of thrown out there, Satanists. This is obviously not very likely, considering that there haven't really been any sort of religious paraphernalia found anywhere near these sites, nor does the evidence point towards any sort of uh nor does the evidence point towards any sort of satanic group in the area being reported nor nor does the evidence point towards any sort of satanic group in the area being reported cannibals now this one is unlikely in one way and considerable in another unlikely because there is rarely any evidence of an attack that would lead to cannibalism or any blood found really ever but considerable in a way that we'll discuss a little later. Next up, serial killers. There are also some who ser- uh, who theorize that it could be a serial killer. However, to be honest with you, um, a lot of these cases go back to the 1900s and they spread across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so, in order for the serial to move so quickly, like I said earlier about the um, cults, they would have to have some sort of time portal to be able to switch dimensions like that. Which, to be honest with you, <laughs> is a perfect segue for the next theory: uh, portals. Some people believe that disappearances are, are due to portals. Instead of explaining it myself, to be honest, though, because I have a little uh, trouble understanding it myself, I am going to go ahead and let this response by Robert on the popular question form Quora explain. So Robert's, uh, Robert's take is, it is my considered opinion that these clusters contain portals to another dimension. These portals are like gates in a medieval city. If they're closed, no one can leave or enter the city. They are open. Not only can citizens leave the city, but unwanted visitors can enter the city. Most of the time, the portals in the clusters are closed. You can walk all over the area with a large group of 100 people, but nothing will happen and no one will disappear. But When the portals open up, it is distinctly possible that you or your loved one will disappear. Who operates the portals? Contrary to what you might think, I do not believe extraterrestrials push the buttons of their UFO consoles to open up the portals, neither do white bearded scientists at Area 51 who are part of some top secret government experiment. These portals are a natural phenomenon. Think about lightning. We do not need UFOs or strange government project to fire a bolt of lightning. It is a natural phenomenon. The portals open up if the right conditions are met. A synchronicity between me, meteor, girl, another hard word that I hate. A synchronicity between meteorological conditions, astronomical conditions, and atmospheric conditions. Now, while that one is a little bit sci-fi, e you know, if it if it is a thing, it would explain as to why these people just kind of up and vanish and then reappear and then, you know, uh, parts of their body are there and parts of their body are not. I don't know, girl. Maybe their hand got stuck in the portal. And you know, they tried to cross over, and I, you know, they they popped up without without a hand, and that's why there's no feet in some of these cases. Maybe that's why. Maybe they got caught in the portal. Um, I doubt it, but you know, it's out there. And because we have to touch on it, because they did just touch on it, UFOs. There is some evidence to state that there have been UFO sightings near some of these areas um, that we did cover today, but. That's pretty much as far as any links go. There's no other like nobody has come back saying, "Oh, I saw green beings," or "I was in a spaceship." Like when somebody gets abducted by aliens, like girl, you already know that they're on investigation, discovery, on some, you know, they were like they were like you know like the really popular ones that you see, like the green ones, and then I saw gray ones and whatever. This next one, (laughs) Pharaoh people. Now, to be honest. This is a particular theory that I'm not going to lie, I find very interesting to say the least. It is the one that I find the most compelling. Feral people are like to why you would call a pig or other or another wild animal feral. People that either purposely or accidentally become one with the wilderness and found a community of people like them, forming a subhuman breed that is stronger but only left with small remnants of their human self and eyes that might help them see in the dark how would we not find them could they be living in caves if they are in caves and were able to go ahead and find a shelter to avoid being um taken care of by the government it is a little far fetched there is also the tree people of appalachian folklore as well The people of Tennessee have a belief about very tall, wild men with matted hair and deep yellow eyes. Sound familiar? A lot easier to hunt if you're hardwired to see in the dark. And guess what? They are known to live in communities. It should be mentioned that they are known to be good and violent, which would explain what I'm about to mention. There was a boy named Casey Hathaway, who went missing and said that a bear kept him warm and safe. He's a child. It's easy to confuse a wild man for a bear. I've honestly also covered enough of the violence and the mysterious part of it, so I don't think I need to talk about the violent part. The next theory, murder. Foul play is something that is always brought up as if it's some sort of romantic destination to kill somebody at a national park. Um, But just to say it, evidence of foul play is barely ever found and doesn't really ever have any merit to have a lead follow it to be honest with you it really it never creates any sort of real lead no information is ever really found because these people disappeared like there's no evidence left of them to begin with for you to be able to create conclusions like that like somebody tried to murder them if first of all if somebody did try to murder them where is the blood where is the blood? Where is the stupid human mistake? There's always a stupid human mistake in any of these. Whenever a human being who has never murdered anybody before murders somebody, there's always stupid mistakes. A fingerprint, a, a shoe, um, a text, a something. If somebody was trying to kill said person, there would be some sort of evidence to point to it. If you've watched the events, if, If you've watched investigation discovery, you literally understand what I mean. Like it's, it's just common sense. Next one, Bigfoot. All I'm going to say about that, the government and the national park service is covering it up. I'm going to read to you this expert that I found online. So what points to this theory? Well, Unfortunately, there is no centralized database database. (laughs) Unfortunately, there is no centralized database for missing people, and many parks do not even document disappearances uh, specifically in their own parks. So they're not even keeping track of people that are going missing. People are literally just going missing. They put up a bulletin that says missing. If you see them, say something. That's it. That's literally all that they are doing. Instead, At least in the United States, it goes into the National Missing Persons Registry directly. The protocol, obviously, not only are they not really keeping track themselves, they're literally just sending things over, sending these random cases over when they reported to the National Missing Persons Registry. But not only are they literally not keeping track of people that are going missing in their own parks, human beings that are just being lost to time. But the National Park Service literally refuses to release info on missing persons cases to private investigators and the public. So even if you're a private investigator, a person who is, let's say, I don't know, hired by one of the families, you can't even do that. They won't even tell you. If there's nothing to hide, why is nothing being said? That's the only like that's that's what I don't understand about when these kinds of like government conspiracies pop up. It's like, you're adding fuel to the fire. Like you're adding fuel to the fire, allegedly, (laughs) but you're adding fuel to the fire. Like you're adding fuel to the fire, let people do their jobs. Maybe a lead could be made that you didn't make because clearly y'all are lacking. In fact, the phenomenon itself has become so prevalent and popular in recent years that one of the most popular horror TV shows ever, American Horror Story, has even covered it. They cover the topic of Missing 411 and the first season of American Horror Stories and the episode Feral. Familiar? Now, the show never mentions the term Missing 411. However, let me just read to you the episode synopsis for you so that you can come to your own conclusion on that. A couple takes their kids with them as they go camping, but he disappears without a trace. Ten years later, a hunter offers to take them where they last saw their son. But they discover that their son has undergone a fate worse than death, and a grisly fate awaits for them as well. The episode is actually based on the case of Dennis Martin. Um, the one that I mentioned where they allegedly saw a very hairy, uh, man running through the woods, carrying something over their shoulder, that one, yeah, the episode Feral, um, is based off of it. And how does the show handle the explanation to the phenomenon? If I haven't hinted at it enough already, especially by the name of the episode itself. The series concludes that people get lost in these woods, become feral humans, stick together like tribes, and then eat others who get lost. Slowly, completely losing all sense of their humanity, including their native languages, which are now just leftover speech patterns found within their grunts and moans. Makes you think about the Sierra tapes in a much more interesting way, doesn't it? After everything you've heard today, is it fair to assume that something we cannot explain, similar to the mere 5% of our oceans discovered, could be in our forests? Be careful if you ever decide to step foot in one of these parks, because the only thing that you might find is yourself lost. Thank you for tuning in to Canceled Conversations. Like, subscribe, and I'll see you on the next one.